following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. A couple of introductory comments. Uh, normally I take this mic out, but this one isn't working. So keeping this in, I'll try to stay put. Second introductory comment, uh, kids, I want you to have one of these. These are children's worship folders. You can see them there in the front. If you don't have one, you should, or for the young at heart, if you want to draw what you hear, you can do that as well. I'm going to be referring to this at the very end of the message, so I hope that you have it and are filling it in. Last week, we saw that the main point not only of Acts 1, 1 through 2, but the whole book of Acts is that this is the Acts of King Jesus. Not just the Acts of the Apostles or the Acts of the Holy Spirit, but the Acts of King Jesus ascended, reigning, ruling from heaven. So the book of Acts, if Luke was what Jesus began to do and teach... Acts, and the main point of Acts, therefore, is what King Jesus continued to do and teach by his spirit through his apostles. That's the book of Acts. What Jesus continued to do and teach by his spirit through his apostles. And we said that the book of Acts has no proper close because Jesus is still reigning. Jesus is still building his church. Jesus is still adding new chapters. We saw it last week, did we not? We saw it with 21 people coming to the front in the first service, 13 in the second service, and we have over 50 people registered for our Missions in the main hall from three to five. We saw Jesus continuing to stir. Jesus continuing to burden. Jesus continuing to work, preparing to add new chapters. New moments like in Antioch. Set apart from me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work that I have called them to. We saw Jesus doing that even last week. This week, we come back to these first two verses again, and I want to ask a question that isn't normally asked much or doesn't have much time devoted to it, and that is, who is Theophilus and why does that matter? We see him referenced to there in verse 1. Who is this person and why does it matter for why Luke wrote the way that he did? Are there any clues In who he is. So I want to read verses 1 to 2 again. I want to pray. And I'm going to have two points. I'm going to ask first, who is Theophilus? And then second, why does it matter? We'll just do an overview of the book of Acts to answer that question. We're in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. In the first book, O Theophilus... I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Let's pray together. Father, I pray 
I pray that in this moment, that by your spirit, Jesus, the chief shepherd, would show up and shepherd his people. That truly, everything on this earth, the things of earth, would grow strangely dim. That Jesus, you would be bigger. That you would taste better. That you would shine brighter than anyone else, anything else. Anything else that, that we have our hopes and dreams and fears in on this earth. Oh God, I pray that you would speak to us. That we would see your glory. And that you would lead us. In Jesus' name, amen. So question number one, who is Theophilus? You see his name there in verse one. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Well, we said that the first book was the gospel of Luke, that Luke, the physician, companion of Paul, that Luke, the physician, wrote two books. They they roughly fill two scrolls, maximum length of two scrolls, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. And he refers to Theophilus in the Gospel of Luke, but he adds something. Look at verse 3 of Luke chapter 1. It seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So there are basically two schools of thought that scholars have when it comes to Theophilus. The first group would say something like, he's not a real person, he's a metaphor. His name means literally lover of God. Theos, God, Philus, lover, lover of God. In other words, they're saying that Luke and Acts are written to all the lovers of God. The problem with that, and the reason why most scholars believe Theophilus is a specific person, is Luke 1.3, where he's referred to with the title, Most Excellent. Now, what is that? This is a clue because this exact title shows up in the book of Acts. In fact, it shows up for two people. In Acts chapter 24, the Roman governor, Felix, who was the procurator of Judea, is addressed with the same title, Most Excellent Felix, Acts 23 and 24. And then his replacement as the procurator of Judea was Governor Festus. Festus was the governor from 59 to 61, and in Acts 26, Paul addresses Festus as most excellent Festus. In other words, it appears that Theophilus was a high-ranking Roman official since he was addressed in the same way as two other Roman officials. And it was important for Roman officials to have an accurate understanding of Christianity. In fact, it was said of Felix... Acts 24, 22, Felix, Luke says, had a rather accurate knowledge of the way, referring to Christianity. 
They had to have an accurate knowledge of Christianity because people would bring accusations, especially the Jews, against Christians and they needed to be able to make judgments in these cases. So the identity of Theophilus as a high-ranking government official makes this more than merely a matter of historical curiosity. It's going to, if it actually matters, it's going to bleed over into the writing of Luke and Acts. And Luke says, I want you, Theophilus, to have certainty in the things that you have been taught. Luke is saying, I don't want you to be confused about Christianity. I don't want you to think that the good news is somehow fake news, that there's a question mark over the things that you've been taught. I want you to have certainty. Now, here's why that matters. This is point two. How does the rest of the book of Acts help us see that this becomes a lens by which we understand why Luke wrote and how he wrote? I want to give you in this overview sermon some some spectacles and not just bifocals or trifocals, but multifocals. You know the difference? Bifocals have two prescriptions in one lens, a near and a far. Trifocals have three, like far, intermediate, near. Multifocals have multiple prescriptions so that you can have advanced vision. Luke, I'm saying, wrote Luke and Acts with four different focal points to give us an accurate understanding, a certainty for people like Theophilus. And it may be you. It may be you this morning that you're, you're tuning in, whether you're here or whether you're online, and you're in the position of Theophilus. Is Christianity true? I hear all kinds of conflicting things about it. I want to have certainty and not think that it's somehow fake news. So here's here's the glasses. Luke writes, number one, as a historian. Number two, as a diplomat. Number three, as a, a witness to the unity of the church. And number four, as an evangelist. That's what we're going to walk through. He writes as a historian. He writes as a diplomat. He writes as a witness of the unity of the church. And he writes as an evangelist. So we begin. What does it mean that Luke writes as a historian? Professional historians and archaeologists have been some of the biggest defenders of the book of Acts. One of my favorite stories is the archaeologist William Ramsey was not a Christian, and he started studying Acts to disprove Christianity. And he he read things in Acts like where the memorial stone borders of certain places were, and he said, that's wrong. And the more that he went into detail, he said, they actually were there for this period of time that Luke is writing this, and then they were changed. So Ramsey began to see all of these historical facts and actually became a believer. He became so convinced that this was history. Think of A.N. Sherman White, who is a professional Greco-Roman historian, teaches at Oxford University. 
He looked into the historicity of Acts, and this is what he concluded. He said the historical framework is exact. In terms of time and place, the details are precise and correct and picturesque. One walks the streets and marketplaces, the theaters and assemblies of first century Ephesus or Thessalonica, Corinth or Philippi, the great men of the cities and the magistrates, even the mob and the mob mob leader, they're all there. For Acts, the confirmation of its historicity is overwhelming. Any attempt to reject its basic historicity even in matters of detail, must now appear absurd. Roman historians have long taken it for granted. I want you to understand the the providence of Luke as a historian. Remember, it's not as if he could go to the great libraries and study Christianity. These things were happening then. People weren't writing about it in libraries that you could check out. He actually traveled to these places. He's a witness of them. And even as he journeys with Paul, and Paul gets stuck in Jerusalem, what do you think Luke's doing while Paul is arrested? He's able to go around and interview the witnesses. We think that When Luke is writing, for example, in the Gospel of Luke, and he's sharing so much about not only Mary's story, but how she was thinking and feeling, he was there. He could talk to her. He was a witness as a historian. So, of course, these things are going to have a first-person feel because he was there. Because he talked to the people who were there. But, second focus. Lest you think he's just writing as a historian, I want you to consider Luke writing as a diplomat. This helped me so much as I was reading Acts. If Theophilus is a high-ranking official, then it will make sense why Luke is so stunningly selective. Have you noticed this? He's so selective in terms of certain people in certain places. So, for example, in the early part of Acts, we hear a lot about Peter and John and James, the brother of the Lord, But nothing from the other disciples, the original ones, except that James, the brother of John, was beheaded. Just Peter, James, and John. James, the brother of the Lord. Why not the other disciples? And then in the second half of Acts, the whole focus is on Paul and his traveling companions. And because of that, Not only the people, but the places are going to be selected. In the beginning, you hear a lot about Jerusalem and then Judea, Samaria. But then after that, it's Paul in his missionary journeys. And you don't see the spread of the gospel to the south and east of Jerusalem. The only thing that you see, other than the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8, 
You only see the gospel spread to the north and the west of Jerusalem. That is, through the Roman Empire. I wonder why, if Theophilus is a Roman official, and Luke would be taking us there to see the spread of the gospel there. And what do you find out? As Luke is this Christian diplomat, you find out that he's concerned, very concerned about the reputation of the church with the governing authorities. You see him say again and again, the government has nothing to fear from Christians. They're not seditious rabble-rousers. Rather, they're legally innocent and morally blameless. And they spread good wherever they go. In fact, as you look at what Luke does in defending the reputation of Christianity, you see a few different ways that he does it. You see, in both Luke and Acts, he shows the winsome nature of Christianity that that even Romans are becoming believers. You see, in Luke 7, the Roman centurion that believes in Jesus and his servant is healed and Jesus says, I haven't seen faith like this even among all of Israel. You see the Roman centurion at the cross who sees everything that happened and believes in Jesus and says, this one was innocent. You see Roman officials like the centurion Cornelius in in Acts 10 who becomes a believer. You see in Acts 13 that Cyprus, the, the proconsul of Cyprus, Sergius Paulus, actually becomes a believer as well. So as Christianity spreads and the gospel is proclaimed, Romans come to be saved as well. This is not just for the Jews. The second thing that you see in Luke's defense of Christianity is that even when Christians were accused, they were always declared innocent. Every time Jesus and the apostles were accused, accusations were brought forward, Roman officials declared them to be innocent. Consider, for example, the Apostle Paul, thrown into prison in Philippi. The Philippian jailer and his household become saved. And then the magistrates want to let Paul and Silas go. And Paul says, they've beaten me, a Roman citizen, without any trial. No, let them come and lead us out. And the magistrates apologize. They had done wrong. Or, in Corinth, the proconsul Gallio refused to render a verdict when the Jews tried to bring accusations. He didn't render a verdict because he said Paul had done nothing unlawful in the Roman sense. He said, this is just a a debate over the interpretation of your law. He hadn't done anything unlawful in the Roman sense. Acts 18. In Ephesus, Acts 19... The town clerk declared that Paul and his friends were innocent and warned the crowd that they were in danger of being guilty of causing a riot without any cause. Again, the Christians were innocent. Here the crowd was guilty. After Paul was arrested, Felix, Festus, and Agrippa all failed to find any 
guilt in Paul. And these three acquittals correspond to the three acquittals of Jesus before Pontius Pilate. Each time, finding they had done nothing illegal, nothing unlawful. But third, Luke wants us to see that the Roman officials granted that Christianity was an official religion because it wasn't actually a new religion. If it was a new religion, it needed to be approved by the state. But it actually was the fulfillment of an old religion. It actually was the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. It actually is the purest fulfillment of all that the prophets had spoken. And therefore, since Judaism had been granted an official religion licensure from the second century BC, the Romans heard this is just a fulfillment of all that they were hoping for. Now, that's the second lens. Luke as a historian, Luke as a diplomat. Now, the third. Luke writes all throughout Acts as someone who is a witness of the unity of the church. So if you have the the Roman authorities and the challenges brought to the church and you see them declared innocent and declared innocent and declared innocent, now he wants you to see that as the gospel spreads, there's going to be challenges to the unity of the church from within. Not from the outside with the Roman authorities, but from the inside. So you see in Acts 6 how the Hebrew-speaking widows were favored over the Greek-speaking widows. And the church responds to this injustice and the gospel continues to spread. Even in Jerusalem, fills Jerusalem up, even among the priests, many become saved. And then you get in Judea and Samaria, the gospel begins to spread there. And in Acts 8, Samaritans believe, an Ethiopian eunuch believes. And among the Samaritans, there now is a a challenge to the unity of the church because they're asking, should these Samaritans be brought into the church? And the gospel is rightly applied as the balm for this unity and the church stays one. And then in Acts 10, Gentiles come into the church. And you have another division and debate. And in Acts 15, at the Jerusalem Council, we see once again the unity of the church as the Gentiles are considered to be part of this. And every major challenge, you see Christianity turning the world upside down with its oneness. Actually, in Acts 16... It overthrows the the Jewish prayer of the man that says, God, I'm thankful that you didn't make me a woman or a Gentile or a slave. What do you have in Acts 16? You see the conversion of Lydia and then this slave girl and then the Philippian jailer and this portrait of grace overturning that prayer. Jesus loves the woman and the slave and the Gentile. And if we say with the Apostle Paul, there is no Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, you see the gospel alone can make us one. 
Luke is a witness to that. Everywhere that the gospel spreads, one of the ways it turned the world upside down is with its oneness. That means so much to me in this time. Because not only did the polls, for example, in this election show kind of a 50-50 split, I'm more concerned with the statistics that say there are 60% of people who don't have any relationships with people on the other side of the political aisle. 60%! People are just in their little political enclaves, not having any kind of talking together even about these things. This political polarization can only be healed by the church, by the fact that Jesus reigns. But that leads to the fourth lens, and the one that's the most important. Luke writes above all else as an evangelist, as someone who wants you to know that Jesus is the answer, that Jesus is the only hope, that Jesus is the one that we should be looking to. So, for example, in the Gospel of Luke, you see that salvation is accomplished. And in the book of Acts, you see that the gospel is proclaimed. In Luke chapter 2, this salvation has been prepared in the sight of all peoples. And when he's born, the declaration Luke 2 is a savior has been born. And Jesus himself says in Luke 19, I've come for this reason to seek and to save the lost. And in his death and resurrection and ascension, you see, salvation has been accomplished. And now in Acts, it begins to be proclaimed. As the apostles say, forgiveness of sins is available to everyone who will repent and believe in Jesus. And at that Pentecost sermon, 3,000 people repent and believe and are saved and brought into the church And Luke tells us day after day, as they experience this miraculous unity, the Lord kept adding to their number daily those who were being saved. And then you see the gospel be preached even to the ends of the earth where now the Samaritans are saved, Acts 8, and Ethiopian eunuch was saved, Acts 8. Gentiles are saved in response to Peter's sermon, just like the Jews were in Acts 2. You see that the gospel begins to spread to the ends of the earth, and you see Acts 4.12, there's salvation only in the name of Jesus. Here's why I feel so strongly about this. As we look at the pattern of the early church, And how Acts 17, even the opponents of the church said, the church has turned the world upside down as they've gone from city to city. And the gospel was preached and people believed and churches were planted and the song of salvation got louder and louder. Dear friends, what was the strategy of the church? What turned the world upside down? If you look, you notice it wasn't that they were so well-educated, that they were so well-connected, 
that they were so well positioned politically. No, you see that it was Jesus. You see that it's proof that he's risen and reigning on high and pouring out his spirit and building his church. It's the only answer. And you see that the ascension means for the election, the church's strategy has never been to get the right ruler in power because the right ruler is in power. And therefore, what we have to do as a church in this political moment is we have to beware. We have to beware. I read this week a political commentator that that said this. It just, it rang so true with me. Quote, organized religion is receding as a binding force in our culture. And for many people, politics in the form of either nationalism or socialism or some other ism is filling that void. Even for the religious, the animosity toward religion arouses a response that infects religion with political partisanship. And then he says this, and social media tricks our brain in all sorts of unhealthy ways. Whole business models have been constructed to make money by constantly making us angry at other people. If you watch the the social dilemma documentary, that's what it says. What, What sells on social media? How do you get people to click, respond? Fear and anger. That's what's spreading throughout our world. And this isn't just a business plan. There's something way more sinister at work under this, satanic. And it reminded me of something that C.S. Lewis wrote in Screwtape Letters. This indeed, I think, is one of Satan's strategies. Use politics to draw Christians away from Christ. And in this book, you've got Screwtape writing to Wormwood, and you've got the, the, the older demon, more experienced, writing to the younger demon. Here's how you tempt your client away from Christ. Here's what he says. Quote, Let your client begin by treating either patriotism or pacifism as part of his religion. Then let him, under the influence of that partisan spirit, come to regard it as the most important part. Then quietly, gradually nurse him on to the stage at which religion becomes only part of his politics. Part of the cause in which Christianity is valued chiefly because of the excellent arguments it can produce in favor of their political views. Do you see the diabolical genius? See the progression? Start first by making politics part of his Christianity. And then keep going until it's the most important part of his Christianity. And then subtly and slowly his Christianity will only become part of his politics. Which is why... If you just replace the two words patriotism and pacifism with patriotism and socialism, you'll see 
people are in danger of making politics their religion and the political polarization that happens if you demonize one candidate the real danger is that you're deifying the other and making it part of your religion and the bible warns us against this psalm 146 verse 3 do not put your trust in princes in a son of man in whom there is no salvation when his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. When Acts says there's salvation in no one else, because there's no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved than the name of Jesus, it means we have to resist the secular salvation of politics. Yes, as Christians, it's easy for us to say, not me. I'm not about my allegiance being to the elephant or the donkey, but to the lamb. Yes, but do you have the discernment to see the political trick-or-treat game when the elephant or the donkey come dressed up in the costume of the lamb? Do you say, no salvation there? No trust there. Vote for does not mean trust in. First Timothy could not be clearer in chapter 2. We pray for those who are rulers. Pray for them. Don't pray to them. It's very, very clear distinction. Now here is why I want you to feel this with me. I want to speak to kids for a minute. Speak especially to you. Not just kids here. But kids listening at home, I know how hard it is to listen in a, at home, okay? So I, I wanted to try to find the best nursery rhyme that applied to what I was saying. And I'll just confess to you, most nursery rhymes make zero sense to me. <laughs> hey, diddle, diddle, the cat and the fiddle. The cow, right? Cow jumped over the moon. The little dog laughed to see such sport. And the dish ran away with the spoon. To this day, I have no idea what that means, any of it. But there's one that I understand. It's a story about Humpty Dumpty. You know this one, right? He sat on a wall, had a great fall. He was broken beyond repair. Where do you look when you're broken? He looks to the rulers. All the king's horses and all the king's men could not put Humpty Dumpty back together again. And we all know that's what? I'm afraid it's very easy in our political polarized thing to miss something. Even as you're a kid, you can miss this. It's very easy to have the view that person has the problem. That person has the problem. That person is broken. That person is broken. The point of the rhyme is, no, that's us. We are. Of course politics can't fix the brokenness. They're broken too. You can look to your parents, but they're broken too. I think of the, the, the article in the newspaper 
in London that said, what's the problem with the world? What's wrong with the world? G.K. Chesterton wrote in and said, I am. How little, as everyone is blaming everyone else for everything that's wrong and everything that's broken, how rare is it for someone to say, you know what's broken? I'm part of it. Parents, I wonder, as your kids have been watching, we sang this, this song, our, our tongues could not be tamed. I wonder how you talk about those people. Kids, I wonder how you talk about those that have problems. Does it ever come right back and you say, I see that God is holy. I see that I'm the problem. I'm broken. And there's no one else that can fix this. There's something broken within me that my parents can't fix and the government can't fix and no one else can fix. And the message of this book is that there's one king that can fix all of this. There's one king that's going to make all things new. There's one king that's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. There's one king that can forgive all that's wrong with us. One king that can fix and heal our brokenness by being broken himself. Can you believe it? That by his wounds we are healed. There's a reason we're only going to preach Jesus because he's the only one that can fix what's broken in us. Pastor Bud, kids, I'm still talking to you, getting a little excited. Pastor Bud gave the story of these dogs that were raised to hunt cougars. Now, you need to know something about me. I have wanted a cougar for a pet ever since I was five years old. I read a book, Charlie the Lonesome Cougar, and I believed it. And I wanted a pet like that cougar was that boy's pet. And so I've always loved cougar stories. And Pastor Bud said, you read a book about these dogs and what they would do on a hunt. They would bark while they were on the chase. Couldn't see the cougar yet. Bark, bark, be listening, bark, bark. And suddenly the barking would change and it would become adamant and clear and their voices would raise when the cougar was in a tree and they're saying, there he is. There he is. Their whole voice and their whole body is given to that one thing. There he is. And you see it in this one, two, three, truth about God, truth about me. I'm the problem. God is holy. I'm the problem. With our voice, the reason we come to this place, the reason we come on Sunday, which is the day that our Lord and King rose, is because in our worship services and in my preaching, we're giving our voice to say, there he is, there he is on that tree, dying for our sins, rising again, reigning in heaven, the only one who can fix everything that's broken in us. You can be saved. Kids, I'm talking to you right now. Don't think this is just something for your parents. This is something for you right now. If you will see Jesus and what he came to do 
leaving heaven, coming to earth, dying for your sin, fixing everything that's going to be broken in this world forever, you can belong to him forever. How? Repent of your sins. What's wrong? I am. Trust in Jesus that he died for our sins and live forever with him. Let's pray. Father, I pray that if Jesus be lifted up on that tree, you indeed will draw. Draw children, draw adults, draw people who are afraid for their life in this COVID season and wonder, what if I died? Would God even let me into heaven? The answer is no, apart from Jesus. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh God, cause the song of salvation to rise now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others. But please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.